Welcome to the Journal Dottie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's happening on the COVID-19 front line? We've got used to, as a country, being in the news for mostly the right reasons, since the recession, that is. Award-winning literature and television, perfect landscapes for Star Wars movies, progressive votes on societal issues after respectful campaigns, young impressive journalists from Kerry. But this week, Dhoni aside, was quite, quite different. Headlines screamed out about how we had the worst seven-day instance rate of COVID-19 on the entire globe because of our Christmas activities and maybe factoring in the UK variant. But data pieces during COVID are only a snapshot in time, over almost before they're written. So we wanted to talk about the reality today, the in real life what's happening in Ireland. To do that, we've gathered some people together who are at the coalface of the third wave. A GP who saw the surge coming in December, a contact tracer who has been working flat out, but thankfully is a little less busy this week, an emergency department nurse switching between COVID and non-COVID patients, and the head of an intensive care unit on the realities for those most severely ill with COVID. Up first, we wanted to get the perspective of the person who would be the first on your list if you started to feel a little off. GPs really are the first line of defence in the health system, and Dr Amy Morgan, a GP based in Drogheda, has joined us today. Amy, thanks so much for coming on to The Explainer. We are in the third wave now, well into it. But how does this compare for you and other GPs to what was happening in March? Yeah, so it, it's different for a variety of reasons. Um, I think back in March, there was a lot of uh, unknowns, both unknown unknowns and then known unknowns and a variety of different things. And and I, I clearly remember actually working in the practice when, when things were um, beginning to transpire that there were that there were problems essentially in terms of we had obviously this news out there of this virus in 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 China um, and it did seem quite remote um, and we weren't sure how this was going to play out um, and obviously then things escalated um, and then we were given guidance in terms of from the the health promotion advisory website that we would work off as GPs. Um, in terms of safety guidance about what the protocols would be. So we, we effectively went overnight from having an open surgery, albeit with, you know, something in the back of your mind in terms of the returned traveller, let's just say. And it was particularly really from China. It was very specific, you know, at that stage um, to effectively working behind closed doors because we we really didn't know what was going on and we were being told to be cautious and and to to filter patients through and to be careful and then lots of chat about you know organizing PPE and testing. So we went from a base of not really having anything because certainly in general practice we don't get a lot of experience really in dealing with pandemics. Um, I remember the last time working in practice at the time of the Ebola pandemic but thankfully that didn't seem to really cross our path too much. Um, uh, so you know it didn't really um, gain traction in terms of what we were seeing in the practice. So this was, this was all kind of overnight stuff, and it was, I suppose, worrying for us as GPs. And um, it was a huge change to how we were used to working, and it was obviously quite bewildering um, for the patients as well. And they didn't know what was going on. So you're kind of trying to figure out what to do, um, and effectively, uh, you know, then as I said, we we had to work off a base of not having a testing structure and get that up and running 
um, organize our working structures. So in terms of the safety of our staff and our patients, we're obviously paramount. So there was a lot of lot of um, getting organized and then trying to keep up to date with other GPs. I remember my phone just pinging constantly with WhatsApp notifications from our college and from colleagues who were gaining information all the time about what was happening. And it seemed like there was a new guideline, you know, every morning you were coming into work and something had changed and it was different. So you were having to to really think on your feet. Um, and then, you know, as I said, uh, try and to, to the best of your abilities, keep regular care running because at that stage, you know, I mean, obviously people were still presenting with, with their normal medical complaints and, and emergencies and then try and, you know, filter out could this be COVID um, and, and then get testing organised as best you possibly could. So there's huge logistical differences, I think, this time around from where we were in March, which was obviously good. You know, we're coming from a base of, of readiness, but I think the big difference this time is that certainly on the ground in general practice, we did anticipate with the Christmas break that we were going to be coming back to work with it with an increased um, workload in terms of people who were going to probably present with COVID symptoms. and. Um, I think, you know, definitely our worst fears have come to pass, um, you know, since I've been sitting in my seat since coming back from the break. The sheer volume of what's presenting is is quite overwhelming at times. And it, it does appear that, you know, um, there is, as I've said before, it almost seemed at one time that transmission was just, there was embedded community transmission. Um, it seemed to be everywhere you looked. Um, and we're picking it up quite readily, actually. Um, I work in Louth. And we actually have one of the highest incidence rates of COVID in the country per 100,000. So, so yeah, it's it's different, uh, I suppose, on, on several different levels. The management is still the same, obviously. And um, and obviously it is challenging because we know the pressure that um, our hospital colleagues are under um, and capacity issues. And then, you know, as I've said before, you know, we have to keep the show on the road. People are still presenting with strokes and heart disease and new presentations of cancer and it's really challenging to try and keep all these things all these all these balls in the air effectively and, and try and do it safely while you're protecting yourself and protecting your staff um, so yeah it's uh, it's different for a variety of different reasons and, and it's, it's quite challenging and, and we just hope that you know with the restrictions that the numbers will start to come down and the pressure will start to ease um, on our hospital system and and hopefully we can try and navigate our way out of this. Can you pinpoint in December where the shift was? Where When did your working day look more like the third wave than the lull in between waves? Yeah, I think it was probably about two weeks out, probably from Christmas. Um, definitely, you were having periodic phone calls in terms of people ringing with, could this be COVID, uh, you know, in terms of uh, their, their symptoms, but largely over the summer period. And then particularly then again, once the restrictions had come in after Halloween and we had tightened up, there was definitely a leveling off. Absolutely. We, I mean, effectively, if you looked at my screen and uh, my clinical screen at, at my desk, it, it effectively looked like I had a normal surgery. You know, there wasn't really a lot of COVID activity. Um, that's not to say it wasn't out there, of course, but it, in terms of what people were presenting with to us. And then definitely about two weeks out from the Christmas period, we were starting to get phone calls from people. Actually, it was interesting. It was, it was people who had returned from travel, actually, um, and they uh, possibly had start to develop other symptoms like sore throat and a cough, things that by their own admission, they probably wouldn't 
got toys about this time last year, you know. Um, but in context of their of their travel history, the fact that they actually had returned to usually a domestic environment, so to stay with family members or whatever. But so they were obviously on the trying to be on the cautious side. So you could you could definitely see the trickle, 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 um, and it was reflected as well. We have um. There's a great resource called the, the, the GP Buddy Community Tracker. And at the end of the day, um, it's a voluntary thing, but you can you can put in how many people you've referred. Um, it will keep a record of it. And you can certainly see that your referrals were going up and it was reflected, I think, nationally as well. You know, So I think we were, I think we're often referred to as the canaries in the coal mine, but you could definitely see the early signs of increased activity. Um, and then after we came back from... The Christmas period, it was really, it was an avalanche, to be honest with you, in terms of the calls that we were receiving. Uh, and w- how did you deal with that? What does a day-to-day uh, avalanche look like in a GP surgery? And what were the symptoms? Were they still the same symptoms that people were presenting with? Yeah, so um, it, it was quite difficult, really, because traditionally coming back after Christmas would be a busy period for us anyway. Um, you know, people have been at home and they've been resting in Christmas Day and the, and the St. Stephen's Day is generally quiet enough. And then people get over the Christmas holidays and the new year and stuff they have been they may have been putting on the on the long finger. They, they you know, they're presenting with. So we're, we're usually busy around that time period. So when you're trying to organize your schedule and then you have the phones just hopping, essentially, you know, where our administrative staff were absolutely amazing. They've been amazing the whole way through and they are really our eyes and ears and and they were the ones taking the phone calls putting them up for the doctors and then obviously you know flagging things to us you know like saying look I think this person needs to be to be contacted quite quickly they have something else going on so they we were relying on them but we were really really busy you know there was no there was just no gaps in the schedule and um, we were ringing people back and we were sorting out whether they needed testing. And you're having to switch your brain then very quickly from, you know, your, your COVID questionnaires to the screening questions to then, you know, your next phone call might be someone just ringing for a routine matter. You know, they want to check their medication or they or they have possibly something urgent. So it's, it, it was it was extremely difficult to navigate. But thankfully, we did it and we tried to stay as safe as possible and, and get everybody sorted. But um yeah, it was it was extraordinarily busy. Um, and then a lot of these tests that we were sending back or sending off, sorry, in terms of the results that were coming back, our positivity rates were, were certainly, you know, they were really, really high. Um, and the symptoms often ranged from mild symptoms. On, you know, they would report, you know, coughs or sore throats or fever or whatever. But in some people, it was actually very mild. They might have been mild cold-like symptoms and, you know, maybe a sinus issue or some congestion and, and you were having to use your kind of discretion in terms of who would get a test and who would not. Um, and you might have a, a higher suspicion if obviously they had um, had family members who they were in contact with over the Christmas period. So it, it was a it was a variety of things. It wasn't always, I have to say, the classical, you know, criteria of the rapid fever, the shortness of breath and the cough. It was often more insidious than that. Um, so you had to kind of keep your 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 you know your your level of suspicion quite high um because obviously i think you definitely have a better chance of getting someone to follow the public health guidelines if they're very clear about what their diagnosis is have you seen it slow down a little bit have you seen fewer covid calls in the last few days than you have been since 
that period, the 27th, 28th of December. Yeah, it has quite, it has certainly quietened down a bit. Um, uh, I was working in the, the out of areas setting, so setting over the weekend to the GP out of areas in our local area. And that was very busy. I mean, that was a, that was really about 90% COVID related calls. Um, and a lot of these people did, did need testing, but in our own practice, and I think from speaking to other colleagues as well, there has been a slight reprieve from uh, the frequency of the calls that have been made to us in terms of COVID as first presentations. But they have been supplanted somewhat by people who we know are COVID positive. So we've referred them, they have their results and they're ringing us now with their active symptoms. And some actually have deteriorated in, in the time that they have first spoken to us, you know. Uh, because we know how this disease works there's still things we have to learn obviously but we do know and particularly in in some vulnerable vulnerable groups that you know they can deteriorate um often you know day seven day eight into the actual period that they're that they've been since they've been infected with the virus so it's actually those calls now we're starting to see creep up in terms of people whose whose symptoms are worsening and in some cases we have had to refer some people into hospital you know that we're worried about and we we think they need an assessment so you can it echoes the point i think that was made by you know various um hse representatives that often the the infections that have been happening over the christmas period and the new year period they're they're the people who are actually starting to get sick now and who are needing hospitalization now um, and obviously that that is a huge concern in terms of the capacity in our in our hospitals to be able to deal with it. You mentioned earlier about the admin staff that you have, because obviously you're still going to have to see non-COVID patients as well. What is the deciding factor for someone to actually get a face to face appointment with you? Yeah, it's, it's difficult um, because we're, we're trying as best as possible to reduce the footfall to the practice. Um, and, and we're very busy. You know, we have two GPs here. We'd have a GP registrar so that's someone who's training to be a GP a doctor and then a full-time practice nurse and, and we you know the the backbone of general practice in terms of primary care would be a lot of it would be obviously you know chronic disease management and preventative care so I suppose that it all depends on what is deemed acute or an emergency or that cannot wait and and that's that's very difficult um, and it's it's often very difficult for anyone over the other end of the phone be it the, the caller or someone who's on the receiving end to decide that. Um, and I suppose the reason we're doing it at the moment is obviously purely a, a safety issue because um, we do know that the, the levels of, of incidence in the community are quite high. Um, and obviously, I suppose the knock-on effect would be that if I'm to see someone today that goes on to test positive you know, in a couple of days, the, the, you know, the issue would be in terms of me being then a close contact of that person and then obviously if I have to restrict my movements that's a doctor that's taken out of the practice and the same goes for any other member of the practice and we're, we're not uh, unfortunately surplus um, we're, we're um, scarce resource and obviously if, if we need to be there to provide care to our patients and if we're not there it's logistically very difficult and, and obviously it does you know potentially then put extra pressure on, on the hospital service as well if, if there isn't a ready um, readily available um, GP to be able to, to care for a patient so in terms of that, um, I suppose, yeah, things that we feel that are routine checkups or routine blood tests or et cetera, we have deferred those at the moment. But obviously, as soon as things settle down, we would hope to reintroduce everything as soon as possible. Um, and then obviously, you're very concerned about missing 
acute presentations like you know harsh tax will happen strokes will happen you know anything that you suspect and um, particularly in terms of female health or suspected cancers or abnormal bleeding patterns all these type of things they're things that we generally w would want to know about um, and we'd be really encouraging that people you know that people contact their gp about anything that they were concerned about their, their health you know they're not to feel like they're bothering us or you know um that they're a burden, you know, I often just say, look, you know, don't second guess yourself. If you need to ring us, ring us and we'll talk it through and we'll we'll come up with a plan um, and we'll make arrangements um, after we'll chat, after we've had a chat. So, uh, but yeah, it's difficult. We've gone back to, I suppose, back to nearly where we were and um, back in March, effectively working behind closed doors. And, and always the concern is is potentially that, you know, either someone mightn't present with something or that you, as a clinician, might actually miss something because you don't have the, the patient sitting in front of you and you're having to make calls over the phone. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, it's challenging, but we're doing our best. Amy, thanks so much for coming in and giving us all of that information for the explainer. Next up, we're going to talk to a contact tracer, obviously a cohort of people who have seen their workload increase exponentially over the last few weeks. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Um, just wanted to start really with asking how busy have you been? We were very, very busy uh, coming up to Christmas. And then, of course, during the Christmas and New Year, it was extremely busy. It's starting to slow down a little bit now again. So the numbers on the system aren't anything like they were. And of course, the number of contacts people ha are having are much less since the lockdown, since level five came in again. Mary, what is your day typically like? What does your workday look like? Currently, we, uh, we, we all draw from the same database. So there's, the names are uploaded from the labs of all the people who've tested positive. And we take, we pick items from that names and that, and they go into our work items. We work from there then. So we, at the start of the pandemic, way back in March, April, there was three levels of calls. There was level one, level two, level three. So level one calls were always made by a clinician, somebody with a medical background, medical nursing background. And we were the ones who were calling people to let them know that they had tested positive. Now they, they do get a text message before we call them as well. So they most of the time they know their result before we come on the phone to them. And we're giving them the advice then on how they need to isolate. And we're collecting it, or we're checking with regards to symptoms they might have or where they feel they contracted the illness. Now, when numbers increase their recent say before Christmas, during Christmas, New Year, there were so many in the system that we were all making uh, what we call 2A calls. So clinicians and non-clinicians were making these calls and they shortened the, we were doing a shorter assessment with the positive patient assessment was much shorter. We weren't going into detail with regards to their symptoms because the emphasis was to get through as many calls as we could in the day to make contact with the people who tested positive to make sure they knew they had the information with regards to isolating. They knew what they needed to be doing. So we were not only phoning them to check that they knew their result, but we were collecting their close contacts as well at the same time. And then those close contacts would then go on to get a call. Would that be the three calls? That's then? right. That's the three call. Then the level three call is where they 
contact tracers, but contact people and let them know that they had been identified as close contacts without identifying the person who they had close contact with. But they would just say to them, you have been identified as close contact. It was last Tuesday afternoon in a coffee shop or whatever the case might be, you know, but they wouldn't be told who the person was. And then to give them advice on restricting their movements. And up to recently, we were also setting them up for a test then so they could be tested. But now because the test centers are overwhelmed, they're only they're not set up for a test. And we're advising them that if they if they develop symptoms to contact their GP and the GP will arrange for them to have a test. But we are giving them advice on how they need to restrict their movements for 14 days, meaning they can't go to work, or use public transport or have visitors in the house or go into anyone's house, but they can go out for a walk for exercise. Uh, you mentioned there the types of numbers you were seeing over Christmas. What exactly were the numbers that you, you were dealing with? Oh, there was, there was 5,000 on the system at any one time. So I'm not sure if the system stops at 5,000, but we were drawing down names and there was a lot of contact tracers on duty and we still it was still staying at around 5,000. And you said you were busy before Christmas as well. Could you tell in advance then that the, there was trouble coming by the amount, by the assessments you were doing with people? So you were kind of figuring out what people were doing with their days. Oh, yeah. We knew that we were going to be very, very busy by Christmas week because early in December, once the um, the restrictions eased off, we were seeing where people had 16, 20 contacts and some people had more and there was a lot of uh, funerals and weddings and people going out for meals, meeting people for lunch, meeting people for dinner. And we could see this was going to really, because usually when there's activity like that, it takes about two weeks or three weeks for it to appear then in, in positive cases. You know, so we, could, we knew and the, the senior people in the contact tracing centres were making provisions in terms of having people scheduled to work through Christmas and New Year to deal with the numbers. So you knew going into Christmas that you were going to be working a lot oh, yeah. over Christmas and New Year. And when you're on yeah. the phone to people and you're going through, um, you know, the amount of people they've seen, it might be between 20 and 30. How long does that take? Because you mentioned there that you've less time with people now. So does the process feel a bit rushed? No, because it does and it doesn't, I suppose. We we try to get through as many calls as we can in the hour uh, but then of course where you have people who have a lot of contacts th those calls are obviously going to take that bit longer and we try to do it in such a way that it's respectful to the person and that you're giving them the time they need but at the same time we try to to be as efficient as we can so it's sometimes it might mean um, writing down, writing all the information down. And that's what I've done in the past. I've written the information and inputted it on the into the system afterwards, to to because I felt it was faster. That it worked better for me, you know. So we all looked to, at ways where we could work more efficiently and faster, without letting the person we're talking to know that we're in a hurry. Do you know what I mean? Because the last thing we want is to be rushing people who've got this news that they're positive. And for some people, it was very upsetting news, you know, and then you have people who live alone who need a bit of time because they want somebody, they want a lot of reassurance or they want to just chat sometimes as well. So, but I suppose it, in the last 
two weeks now we've seen where the contacts have come way down because since the restrictions have come in that people aren't having that many contacts and it's mostly just close family so that problem isn't doesn't exist now anymore so that you're not seeing the the high numbers in the teens or 20s anymore no not really it that it would be few and far between now the uh in my experience in the last week that where there have been a lot of contacts is where somebody has been to a funeral or to a wedding and they might have a lot of contacts but generally speaking people just have their close family yeah because obviously there's still uh, weddings and funerals going on albeit a, a lot smaller in most cases that's right yeah but i think with the funerals even though there's very few allowed into the church there's still a lot of people gathering at church yards and they're calling to houses. Yeah, so this still still upping the context there. How do people react on the phone? You mentioned there some people get upset, and um, but we've we have heard stories of people uh, being a bit aggressive or being uh, taking it out on the contract tracers. Have you experienced that? I haven't really. I, I could count on one hand the number of people that have been very angry on the phone. Most people are if they're upset they're not upset with us you know they're just upset at the diagnosis and the impact it's going to have in their lives and most of the time they're upset because they're thinking of the people they've had contact with and how it's going to impact on their lives and that they're going to have to restrict their movements and they get worried about that but I have come across very little aggression on the phone I must say you know very very little Um, most of the time people are very very easy to deal with and they're very appreciative of the work we're trying to do you know and yeah they're trying their best are they quite open about their own contacts even if they are high like the in the 20s and 30s most people are and they get them they do get embarrassed sometimes and they apologize and they you know but we we try then to be very reassuring that look it's you all you need can do now is let us know who you've had contact with so as we can protect them and they can protect people they'll come in contact with because the last thing you want is to be giving out to them or give them the impression that you're judging them because then they'll shut down and we won't get their contacts yeah is that is that part of your training that you have to make sure that they want to be open with you that they want to let you know exactly um who they've been in touch with rather than hiding it because they are embarrassed Absolutely. It's part of our training, I suppose, not to be uh, judging people, you know, not to let not to make people feel uh, that they've done something terribly wrong. People in the most cases, people are doing their very best. Most people are trying their very best. And, you know, there's I've come across very few people who've blatantly gone out to socialize and didn't care. They they have They've been trying their best. Their best hasn't been good enough all the time, but they have tried their best. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long time we've been doing this. You've been doing it, um, as I said at the start, you haven't been doing it the whole way through, but at different points you've been doing it. Was the Christmas rush different to the March and April rush? A little bit. Uh, in March and April, although it was the numbers were very high, there was a lot of panic there. For on all sides, because none of us knew what this was like. You know, we'd never been through anything like this before. And there was a lot of panic when we would ring people. They needed an awful lot more reassurance. And what we did notice that time, well, and the few people I've spoken to about this, the other contact trace would have noticed the same, is that we didn't see whole families being infected, whereas now we are. When you ring somebody now, they, they, we often hear, oh, I'm the sixth person in the house to test positive. 
or I'm the fourth person in the house. We're all positive now. We didn't have that as much in, in the early stages in March and April. And that's probably a mix of things, the, the new variants or people n- not isolating in the one room. That's it. I think people became complacent maybe as time went on. A lot, some of the fear went, you know, the panic went and then they became more complacent about how they managed their isolation. And people are inclined to get mixed up between isolation and restricting movements as well. They don't always fully, no matter how it, much is explained and it's in all the leaflets and the literature they're given. But people don't seem to fully understand that, that uh, isolating isolating means being in a room by yourself away from everyone else in the house who's negative you know t- the emphasis being on trying to keep them negative and keep them safe Mary thanks so much for talking to us at the explainer today and from contact tracing we're going to move now to a regional hospital where Carol Cronin works as an emergency department nurse Carol you're obviously incredibly busy so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us can you start by describing what a normal day on the wards is like right now? Um, so it's quite busy. Um, that busyness has changed in the last year. Um, emergency departments by nature are always quite busy, but um, this year, you know, like we've been streaming COVID and non-COVID patients. Um, we obviously are still facing regular issues that we've always faced in our a such as short staffing and a lack of space. Um, so now we're just trying to, you know, involving management and like delegating work and streaming them to different areas. So um, our particular emergency department keeps the COVID patients and the patients that we're, we suspect of, of having COVID. And then we stream the work to um, other different areas. So like that has been a massive change and a massive adjustment to us because we're so used to, you know, full steam ahead um, doing all the different work and just getting our head around that change and you know there's been a great uptake by the hospital the other medicals uh, medical staff you know they've been fantastic and they've really really been very helpful but it can be it, it can be quite stressful and um you know you've definitely definitely seen a drop in morale among staff in terms of numbers how many patients are you seeing in a day and of them how many of them are COVID? Um, so it'd be hard to give exact figures, but, you know, we definitely surpassed the, the 100 figure. Um, you know, as I said, we're, we're a regional hospital and the, the one that I work in, we don't have um, the luxury of being able to close our doors and um, kind of refer patients to another hospital, such as we'll say the, the likes of Dublin would have. Um, you could, you know, you could be quite a lot of patients per day. Since Christmas, we've really been seeing a huge surge in the amount of patients that were, you know, we suspect of having COVID or have respiratory symptoms or symptoms that that um, look like they would be infected with COVID. Um, so a massive, massive surge in those. And like our unit is, is quite small now. There is um, work going on at the moment to extend that area and has been ongoing. It just unfortunately hasn't been able to be opened yet. But um it's quite hard when we're, we're having that volume of patients suspected with COVID because we don't have the area for them. We don't have the isolation rooms. We don't have the cubicles, you know, and all along when we used to use the corridors for patients, which was, it was never okay, but it was a little bit easier. Now you can't do that because you're at risk of infecting people who are just walking down the corridor. So that's a massive challenge. 
So what other infection and control procedures are in place right now? Um, so like we would, um, you know, as I said, we, we have a, a streaming service. So I, I presume it's it's very similar around hospitals around Ireland and the world. But what we do is we have a nurse standing, mostly a nurse, sometimes it can be a doctor, but um, standing at the front door and they meet the patients, you know, and they decide straight away, have they COVID symptoms or are they okay to go on the non-COVID stream? And then from there, they separate them completely. So they've separate waiting rooms. They have separate areas. As I said, we've got other units involved, such as the like a surgical unit and a medical unit. And um, so the non-COVID patients go down there. So they are protected to a degree. However, there's been many, many challenges with a lot of people, you know, including staff being asymptomatic um, and actually being infected with COVID. And then you know, when our swabs return at a later date for an, a patient that has, you know, gone down this the green stream, they have actually been um, infected with COVID. Now we are, even though we're very, very busy, we're very good at separating patients and, um, you know, people wearing PPE. We insist that, you know, all patients wear masks. Obviously, you know, there are exceptions. And then our staff are really, really good with their PPE as well. Um, but the PPE itself can be quite challenging. Uh, especially in, in situations like, you know, as for an emergency department, we see a lot of traumas, we see a lot of cardiac arrests, you know, on a daily basis. And you're doing this work and it can be it can be quite physical work and it can be quite hard. Um, but we have, you know, layers and layers of PPE on which can be quite difficult. Um, but we're, we're just getting used to that now as well. So when you get ready for work, instead of getting into your usual uniform, are you getting into that really extensive PPE every single day? Uh, no, so it would depend on where you work. So obviously you have your mask. Um, then if you're in the COVID stream, then yeah, you would. For every patient, you would have a new set of PPE. So we change our PPE for every patient because obviously the first patient you might have gone to might have been positive for, for COVID, but the second one may not. They only they may only be suspect of, of COVID. So you change your, your full PPE for that. Um, if you're working in the non-COVID stream, you would obviously take your standard precautions where necessary, um, the hospital and the HSC have great guidelines on on, um, on the different PPE that we're supposed to wear for different procedures. What does that feel like when you're told you're going to the COVID stream or the non-COVID stream today? Is there a preference among nurses to go one way or the other? Does the job feel different? Um, yeah, I guess at the start there was definitely um, there was definitely a preference to go to the non-COVID stream. Um, you know, as you can imagine, you know, we're only human. So a lot of people actually have underlying conditions, um, even though they're well able to work with them, but they do, you know, and they, and they are susceptible to, to getting infection a lot quicker than uh, someone who wouldn't have. But so they would, you know, they would get priority and they would work in the, the non-COVID stream, obviously with pregnant staff as well. Um, our management have been fantastic and they've supported them in the non-COVID stream. Um, I have worked in both and I am still working in both. I don't mind. I really don't mind. Um, I think it's very hard for patients. You know, I had um, an oncology gentleman there recently and he was, um, he actually, his result came back positive for, for COVID and that was really difficult for him because now with no visitors, they're by themselves and, you know, some people take um, news quite hard and, 
definitely something like that. And I think there's still a little bit of a stigma around having COVID. Um, so I, I never mind going and sitting with patients, even in my PPE. I mean, once you have your PPE on and we've all been trained in it, um, and if you if you're doing it correctly, then you should be at no risk when you're with the patient. And look, we all know what an amazing job you guys all do. And you have mentioned that morale is low. Does that make it even tougher to go and do these things that you're talking about? And how are you preparing for the weeks ahead that we're being told will only get harder? Yeah, so like at the start, um, I think there was maybe a month or two where very few people came to the hospital. And um, I, I know Tony Houlihan actually commented on that and was quite worried that people, you know, with emergencies that we see on a regular basis, such as uh, stroke, they weren't coming in. So we got a month or two, I think, of, of very few patients coming in, which was nice for a break in a way. But then it just, you know, the numbers have soared. And our, like, before Christmas, before restrictions were eased, our, like, the non-COVID stream was so busy. Like, it was so, so busy. Um, because there are issues, like, the GPs are, are overwhelmed just as much as we are, and they really have to protect themselves because if they get sick, a whole community is out if they're not seeing patients. Um, as well as that, um, outpatients appointments are cancelled, surgeries are cancelled, even patients getting chemotherapy, they, you know, they can be cancelled if, if there are beds and things like that. And all of those patients, you know, to a certain degree were, were coming to the emergency department to be sorted. And that put massive, massive pressure on the department and staff just got you know, we, we were short staffed anyway, and with sick leave and staff being infected with COVID, it was very, very hard. And then Christmas came and it, it flipped to the other side that the COVID stream was so busy and it is so busy at the moment and it can be very hard. And certainly after Christmas, a lot of our staff actually were infected. Um, and so they any staff that who's infected, if they've had any close contact, if that is a colleague, then they have to isolate then as well for two weeks. So you can imagine the volume of staff that we'd have out and from that. And it, it's just been a really, really challenging time for staff. And just to end on a more positive note, Carol, have you been vaccinated or do you have a vaccination plan? Yeah, um, I got my vaccination. I think it was on the 3rd or 4th of January. So it was, I was delighted. I was, I was really uh, privileged to, to get that so soon. Um, I was so happy to see vaccines become available. It's something that the whole world has been crying out for for the past year. And I just think it's fantastic to see them coming our way now. And I really look forward to my second dose and just feeling a lot safer and hopefully a better year. Was there a morale boost to the whole department when you got those vaccinations? Yeah, there, there was. Um, I remember um, another nurse, you know, working with me. You know, she said she was uh, after a night shift, so she was maybe a little bit more tearful than normal. But, you know, it was the first day that uh, the vaccines were rolled out and herself and another staff member down getting the vaccine just became quite tearful, you know, because it was, you know, I, I understand that it's still ongoing and numbers are soaring, but it is, you know, it is a very, very positive step um, towards beating this. So, um, yeah, it definitely, definitely made a, a difference to staff's um, perception on the whole situation. 
And we're going to stay in a hospital setting now and talk to the head of the intensive care unit at Midwestern University Regional Hospital in Limerick, Catherine Motherway. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Um, We've been talking to various frontline workers for this explainer. And I guess the first question for us then is what's it like working in critical care areas of Ireland's hospitals right now? So at the moment in the critical care areas where we're experiencing as as well, published now a second surge in admissions of patients critically ill with COVID. So we are seeing a lot of patients being admitted in the last few days, and we expect that we will meet about one patient in 10 of everybody hospitalised. So we're, but that it's spread over a lot of the ICUs on this occasion. The last time round, it was concentrated predominantly in the East. So the last time round, the maximum number of patients we had in the critical care area was 160. So we're all seeing all of the ICUs, a lot of people being admitted who are sick with COVID. And it's, it's at least this time around, we know how to treat these people. We have a lot of experience from the last two surges. We have a fair idea of what works and what doesn't work. And we are doing relatively well in terms of our outcomes for these people. But there's a, it's difficult working with PPE for a 12-hour shift as a nurse by the bedside of a patient with COVID. So they need to be braked regularly. Yeah, so this is something from a layperson's viewpoint, so it might be completely incorrect. But does it change how you deal with patients? Because if you have a different sense of smell, touch, hearing, sight, because of the extensiveness of the PPE you're wearing, have you had to change the way you deal with some of the nuances in a patient's condition? Uh, no, it just makes it slightly more difficult because you have to don, which means put it on, and then you go in and you have to be able to look at the patient and examine them, and then you have to doff. So you have to make sure that you go in and see patients as regularly as possible and that you have enough PPE, and we do have enough PPE on this occasion. There isn't a difficulty, at least locally, and I don't think nationally, with PPE. So it is. it, it doesn't make it more difficult to examine the patient. It just means that it takes longer to get in and to get out of the room. So there's a lot of time involved in that. And in addition, you have to make sure that you've done it properly. So we have big mirrors in the unit now so we can look at ourselves. And if at all possible, we'll get a buddy to check us as we are putting it on and to make sure we have it on properly. And then we'll get a buddy to check us when we're taking it off, if at all possible. And that's why the staffing ratios are so high and required in the units um, nationally, because as we go in and out of each room, And we're lucky in Limerick, we have single rooms for all of our patients. So we haven't a difficulty with cohorting. So we just need to go in and out of each room, donning and doffing properly to make sure that we actually don't get the disease ourselves or don't transmit it to another patient who doesn't have COVID. So it makes working more difficult and it is uncomfortable to wear. It's hot and it's sweaty and it marks your face. And if you're a nurse and you have it on, we have to we have to actually break them very regularly to make sure they get out of the room as much as possible because it is and it makes it more awkward to hear people. And when you're talking to them, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself from being, um, you know, talking to people with masks in the street, even it's kind of hard to know what they're saying when you can't see their mouth and you can't lip read. So it does make actually communicating with your staff a bit more difficult. So we have to make more of an effort to be sure. So we have notice boards and we have walkie talkies and we have all sorts of things to make sure we can communicate properly. And for the patients who are waking up when they see this masked visored face, I can't imagine how that is, to be fair. So in some units, we write our names down on it to make sure they know who's looking after them. 
But it is, I'd say, for them quite frightening, um, particularly if they're in any way, shape or form um, confused or agitated by the disease itself or by being in ICU. Because a lot of people in ICU get temporary delirium. So it can be quite disturbing for them to see us looking like face or like spacemen. So we have to really try and communicate hard with the patients to let them know who we are and what we do and why we're gowned up so much. So it is a bit difficult for them. What's it like for a patient who is severely ill with COVID? And for the doctors that are looking after them, how do they make the decision? What are they looking for to make that decision? Yes, this person needs ventilation now or yes, this person needs to get to an ICU now. So the patients whom we are admitting to the ICU are generally patients who are very, very short of breath. So they are finding it really hard to breathe. A lot of them have a bit of significant chest pain, but their predominant symptom is shortness of breath. So in the first instance, we ask a lot of people to try and lie in their tummy. It's called awake self-proning. And in addition to that, we put on a tight mask on their face to give them high levels of oxygen under pressure. And that oxygen is quite hot. I don't know if you've ever been to a country where it's very humid and very hot, but what we try and do is to get them to breathe um, warm, humid oxygen so that they can continue to not get dry secretions. So it is an uncomfortable process. And we've had some patients um, in our unit who have done that for up to uh, four weeks lying on their tummy most of the time, making sure, because that sometimes for a lot of patients means we get more oxygen into them and we can avoid having to, what we call, invasively ventilate them. And we know that if you can avoid that, that outcomes are good. And obviously, if that doesn't succeed, then we put patients to sleep and we um, put them on an invasive ventilator. And then as they wake up, um, They may or may not, hopefully not have delirium, but if they do, we try and orientate them. If uh, as they're waking up, the tube is in their throat and it is unpleasant, but we do our best to make that tolerable for them. We actually spend, we use a lot of drugs to try and improve the tolerance to the tube, which is uncomfortable. A number of patients who get very sick with COVID get kidney failure. About one third require um, kidney dialysis. The vast majority of those who survive will recover their kidney function. So that requires big drips. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people who get very sick, If you, you know yourself, if you have a bad flu and if you're in bed for a week, you're quite weak. And it's very common when, from being sick that you actually have a lot of weakness, muscle weakness and inability to move as much as you would before as you're waking up as well. But the ones that are coming into us are coming into us because they are very short of breath. They're downright breathless. It's not very pleasant. Obviously, it's very difficult to compare different cohorts of patients, different illnesses, different traumas of those who end up in ICU. But do COVID patients differ from the usual patients you would see in intensive care? Is it different amounts of oxygen that they need than what you would be used to in other respiratory diseases? Or um, would you usually see people struggling to breathe that much? What is there any big tell between COVID patients and non-COVID patients? Um, the, well, their, their predominant symptom coming into the ICU is shortness of breath. Um, other people come to the ICU with shortness of breath too, people with sepsis, people with, some people come after emergency surgery, people come with kidney failure for various reasons. So we, we see people who require what we call organ support and generally multiple organ support, which means we have to support many organs, including the chest and the breathing. So for the COVID patients, the most common thing they have is 
failure of their respiratory system. And then if that gets very bad, they have additional problems with needing blood pressure medication and kidney medication. Other patients come in because maybe they had a pain in their belly and they had a hole in their tummy or something, they had a perforated um, ulcer, or maybe they had big cancer surgery, maybe they get renal failure because they've had a funny reaction to a drug. There's loads of different reasons to require admission to ICU, and that's what I'd like the public who are listening to this to remember. It's very hard to avoid having, you know, a, a stroke or a heart attack or, you know, getting something wrong with your tummy. But you can, if at all possible, and if you still haven't had COVID at this stage, by staying at home and limiting your contacts, really improve your chances of not getting this disease. And that is probably the best healthcare advice anybody can give anybody at the moment. Stay at home wash your hands and do all of the things that our good chief medical officer have been asking you to do because avoiding getting this disease is a really good idea at the moment because we need we need to be able to take care of the people who already have it, obviously, and are getting sick with it. But also there are a large number of people and the last time around at the height of the pandemic with about 160 people in ICU and at that stage we had, um, I think it was 250 beds, but we still had at least another 100 patients in ICUs with other problems that need our care and um, and attention. So we are trying our level best to ensure that everybody gets care. But for COVID disease, they come in with breathing problems and it's very difficult for them. And that's exactly the kind of big debate and concerns that we're having around hospitals right now, because we're in this surge capacity or we're going to be in the surge capacity. ICUs have are filling up rapidly and this creates huge problems for non-COVID patients and future non-COVID patients. Someone who's going to be in a car crash in a couple of weeks or who has a severe heart attack or severe stroke, that is obviously going to pose problems in that regard. Um, I think... Um, what we have to understand is we know, and, and I've said this publicly, that this disease can overwhelm healthcare systems. And it hasn't done that yet, but it's certainly put us under a lot of pressure. It is absolutely imperative that we maintain our emergency care, and we are doing that. But it is absolutely imperative that the public understand that the only way that we continue to do that is if they, as they've done in March and in October, comply with the public health guidance. And lockdowns are very difficult. They're awful things. I have to say I'm finding this one particularly difficult myself, except I have to go to work. Um, so it is very, very difficult to have limited social contact. We're very social beings. So we need the public to understand that we don't wish to be overwhelmed. We are providing emergency care at the moment. We are no longer providing elective surgery, but we are providing time critical surgery. But we do know that if this disease continues to run a be, uh, to run rampant in the community that we will have a significant difficulty. And to be honest with you, only 10% of patients are coming into ICU. The other 90% are on the wards. The wards are under real pressure at the moment. The, I mean, our COVID wards are under a lot of pressure. We have a lot of people in hospital with COVID for various reasons. They need oxygen. They need care and attention. They have some of them are older patients who, you know, are symptomatic. And we need to be able to get people in and out of hospital. And we need to be able to, you know, with with a, in a viral pandemic where the disease is very transmissible, um, we need to be sure that we are actually keeping patients as separate as we can, which means we're not able to use all of our beds because if you have one patient with COVID in a four-bedded unit, you obviously can't put three other patients who don't have COVID in there with them. So we are finding it um, a challenge at the moment across the entire healthcare system to ensure that we have enough beds. But we do at the moment, there are beds. 
And we are working closely with each other across all the hospital sites to ensure that that actually continues to happen but for us to cope. And people keep asking me, will you cope? We'll only cope if the public stop the transmission by doing what they've been asked to do. And the other thing, of course, which we should all remember is the vaccine. When we had this conversation last March, there was no vaccine. To my absolute delight, we have a vaccine and it is a testament to science and to the scientific community that they've managed to do this in record time. And we have started vaccinating healthcare staff. We're starting to vaccinate those most at risk of death, which include our nursing home residents and also the staff who take care of them. And that is a huge glimmer of hope, I have to say. It's very rare that I smile when I get a needle stuck into my arm, but I did last Monday. It was just wonderful to see this happen in such speed. So I think for everybody, this third lockdown, it's hard, but at least we have a vaccine. We have a way out. And as it rolls across the community, we will see uh, better times ahead. That is the thing, isn't it? A lot of people like yourself are finding this lockdown particularly difficult, but the vaccine is keeping us going. It's a tangible focus for us all. Um, But I did want to ask you one final question about surge capacity, because we've talked a lot about that. We know we have 280 odd ICU beds, but that's obviously more than just a physical bed. It's a staff. It's a whole team of staff. So when we talk about surge capacity of bringing that 280 up to 350 or 400, what kind of treatment can you give at that point? How is it different to what a patient would normally have? Well, what will happen if we use our surge capacity and that surge capacity has been planned? And in fairness, a large number of nursing staff and other allied health people worked in ICUs and trained with us during the last um, surge. So we will redeploy people. Um, A lot of them will be theatre nurses who now no longer have elective theatre work to do because we have deferred those people to surgery, unfortunately, for those people. But we will get to them when this is over. Um, So they will come in and they will provide care at the bedside. A number of those will have worked in ICU in the past. And anybody who's worked in ICU in the past across the hospital system will be redeployed back to ICU. So it's important that um, we understand that they're not all of them fully trained ICU staff. They have, in fairness, transferable skills. They will be supported by ICU trained staff, both at medical and at nursing level. But in the surge, we estimate we can go to 350 beds and still provide very good quality of care. If we go beyond that, there is no doubt we know internationally when ICUs and critical cares and hospitals surge beyond their capacity, the results and the outcomes are not as good. So we're very confident about the 350 in terms of knowing that we have staff who are trained and that we can actually try and deploy. But we do know if we go to very, very significant expansions like quadrupling the critical care capacity, that that would be very difficult to guarantee the um, quality of care that you're giving patients at that point in time. And we know this from other jurisdictions where their outcomes in critical care were absolutely um, limited by the fact that they didn't have enough beds or spaces or time to give people to recover. So that's a place we don't want to get to. And nor will we get to if we can control this current um, surge at community level. But we have a significant bunch of nurses and other professions, including doctors who've worked in ICU in the past, who will be redeployed back to work with us and support us. And we'll support them and we will do our level best to take care of everybody who comes in the door as best as we can. 
Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and give your perspective of what's been happening in Limerick and the ICUs across the country. And I wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of our guests today for taking the time out of their busy schedule um, and obviously their stressful home lives as well to to give those insights that we need to understand why we're doing what we're doing, why some of us are out of work, why some of us haven't been to our workplace in so long and not seeing families and, and living a, a much more different and difficult life than we would ever have imagined for ourselves. But those perspectives uh, really... I guess, give us the knowledge of why we're doing what we're doing. So thank you to Amy, to Mary, to Carol and to Catherine for that. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to all of our guests for their work on this episode. As we start the new year, we'd love to hear from you about possible topics for the podcast. If you have anything that you'd like to see covered, please email us at podcasts at thejournal.ie. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.